Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. And our guest today is somebody who I knew um, sort of peripherally when I was in vet school and she was a resident at Cornell. Um, Go Big Red. And uh, it's really nice to connect again. Um, Joanne Intel, welcome to Central Line. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today and good to see you again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like it's been no time at all and then also like 100 years. <laughs> like you look exactly the same to me. So. Same here, same here. <laughs> um, but um, we are going to be talking today about um, a piece that actually you had uh, been a co-author on in JAVMA in March of this year, 2022, um, which I thought was really interesting. It just caught my eye while I was flipping through. So we're going to be talking about some topics related to that article and that study. But before we get started, do you want to just um, give our listeners a brief introduction to yourself and what you've been doing? Sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so I grew up on Long Island. I'm from New York. Um, I did my vet school at Cornell, as you said, um, and then went to Long Island for my internship, came back to Cornell for my residency, um, couldn't, uh, stay away. Then I worked in private practice referral, um, in upstate New York for a few years. I moved to Maryland for a few years and did a stint there, went back to Long Island uh, for another go round, <laughs> working in private practice referral, and then made the switch over to academia back in early 2017. And that's where I've been since. Um, yeah. Awesome. So I like that you've seen a couple different corners of the vet med yeah. universe and you've had some repeats, but you've also been around some to see what, what kind of things are out there and what, how it is, how different people do things. And I feel like that's important for today's topic, um, which we'll get to in yeah. just one more second. But I have one more question that I love asking people because I feel like it tells me so much about who they are and how they view veterinary medicine. So if you, I don't know if you tweet, like I gave up on Twitter, but <laughs> let's say um, if you could put out one tweet or a billboard that the entire veterinary profession would see in the morning on their way to work, what would it say? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't tweet anymore myself either. Um, <laughs> it got scary. <laughs> um, one thing that comes to mind is sort of plagiarized from one of the radiologists when I was a student at Cornell. And he used to always say, it's not your fault. Um, mm. And maybe you know who I'm talking about, maybe not. But mm -hmm. it was always, a, to me, it was in reference of, you know, well, if you didn't know this differential or you didn't know this diagnosis or you didn't think of it, it's not your fault because you didn't know it. Um, so it's like your ultimate cop out. But I think it it really also is a good thing to remind uh, people nowadays, especially with kind of how the profession is shifting and changing and struggling that, it, you know, I think it's something I think about, it's not your fault. Um, some of the other yeah. angles of it. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good one. Cause that can be applied to so many different areas, both in vet med and in other aspects of life that <laughs> yeah. there's so much that goes on that is just, it's not our fault and we can only control what we do with it. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Especially um, when you don't know the answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and knowing a really, a, a lot of really good ways to say, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to be able to figure it out. <laughs> it's <laughs> exactly. a very valuable life skill. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Um, okay. So, uh, so let's dive in. Um, 
So I've never worked in research. Um, I've only been in private practice and in industry, I guess now, if that's what we call it. Um, and so I don't have experience with like designing mm -hmm. studies and deciding where that money goes and who's going to be in on the study and how we figure out what we want to study and narrow that down. Um, and so I always wonder like who does those things? Like how do these studies that we see in JAVMA, how do they get <laughs> put in motion. Can you talk about the study that you co-authored that just showed up in March? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, this study was evaluating what's known as readability of discharge summaries of um, that we were distributing to owners of pets that presented to our service. Um, and the idea of it came from, I mean, depending on how long you want this to be, but the idea of it essentially came from my time spent working in referral practice, um, you know, where I would spend a great deal of time writing down summaries of these cases that I was seeing um, under the guise of, well, I only have, you know, an hour for a new consultation to talk to an owner about this complicated topic or a recheck appointment is a half an hour. But, oh, I have this backup plan, which is I'm going to write everything down and I'll be so clear and everything will be in there. And, you know, don't tell the owner, don't worry about it. It's all going to be written down. Um, and over the years noticed this pattern where an owner might call, you know, a day or so later and ask a question that I knew I had written down in that summary, you know, um, whether it was related to frequency of medication and when to come back for recheck, what does the treatment duration entail? What is the prognosis? Um, and so, uh, initially I kind of, viewed it as, well, they're, they don't understand what I'm writing or they're just not reading it or, you know, any com sort of combining of those things. And over time I started to think maybe I'm the problem, you know, maybe I'm not being as clear in these things as I could be. And, uh, this, this is something that, you know, transcended which job I was at, which clients I was dealing with. And then kind of thinking back, you know, I worked with interns and residents and it wasn't as the anything I was writing there seemed more clear. So I kind of just got it into my head. Like, wouldn't it be interesting to study this and, and, le and learn how people learn? I got really interested in that. And could this be some sort of thing that could be analyzed? And so when I started in academia, it was just this chance encounter that I had um, meeting some of the educational researchers. So we have this whole set of people, and I never knew this in vet school, that, that behind the scenes, you know, I thought vet school was just veterinarians teaching veterinarians, but there's all these other really, really brilliant people who maybe don't have a veterinary background, but know about education, um, who are in charge of things like curriculum development, communication, tasking, that type of thing, and met up with them on a chance encounter um, and just said, hey, this is something I've noticed. And they said back, oh, you can actually study this, and this is how you do it, and you can analyze readability using specific software. And here's a study, you know, that we did looking at this information of online material that's out there for owners of pets. Um, and so it just kind of spun off from there, um, in a very organic matter. Um, and then I had a rotating intern at the time, Julia Medland, who was interested in oncology, wanted to do some research. And I talked with her and most people I talk, talk about this with don't who want to, you know, they want to do some sort of lab project or clinical trial, but she was like, yeah, I'm down. This sounds great. And so together we devised the study. Um, she did the legwork of a lot of the data processing and then together we wrote it and that's where it came from. So it was really kind of cool how it just, just evolved essentially. Yeah. It, it asks a really important question and um, it's a question that I really don't think a lot of us probably spend that much time thinking about. Like, 
I, I could be wrong and I don't want to speak for, you know, our client care teams who know exactly how many clients call in asking the same <laughs> questions that we wrote down in the chart, you know, and we assumed they knew the answers to. Like, I think our, our client care teams probably know more than anyone, um, how often clients call in asking questions that we thought we gave them very clear answers yeah. to. So um, if we're lucky, we don't get all of those questions as veterinarians. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> so I, but I think that's a really important point that you made where you were like, you know, we think that writing it down is our fail safe backup plan that like no client could leave here, go home and read our discharge instructions and not have a very clear idea of what I said, what's going on, what our plan is, and what their, their role in that plan is. And yet we really find that that's not the case at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like, um, like these findings, I mean, I think there's a lot that can be gained from, um, from reading this paper and from thinking about this issue more, even just like, you know, individual members of the veterinary team thinking, okay, what could I do to make this more clear, whether it's a spoken or written thing, like us not, not assume that people are going to understand just because we know what's going on up here, um, in our heads. But do you think like that, in primary care, vets yeah. typically do a better job than a specialist might about making sure that that information is understandable? Or do you think that this kind of finding is probably applicable across mm. the spectrum of veterinary teams? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And when I think about it, my mind autom almost automatically flips it to say, I think in specialty medicine, we go out of our way to make things more complicated. Um, and part of that is this just way that we've been taught to do it. You know, as students, we're taught to write the summaries and that's a reflection of how well we understand what's going on in that case. But we might just be copying a textbook or copying another summary that was written and just tweaking the name in the, the, the sex of the patient. Um, and then that perpetuates through internship and residency when, you know, we're then flipping around and grading the students on their paperwork and getting into specialty medicine. We, we just the way we talk to each other, the way we encourage, you know, presentations of cases. I think we, we go out of our way to make it more complicated. Um, I don't, I think general practitioners are probably equally as guilty of these, these communication issues, but they also have, less time to sit down and write a four page summary of a case, right? Like I feel like they see, you know, I was saying before I had an hour long consult and I'd have to summary, summarize that. They may have, you know, how many appointments in 15 minutes or something. So I think maybe they just have to, by nature, rely more on shorthand or handouts or, you know, things that are maybe more um, condensed, but that may not necessarily mean it's, it's better or more readable, I guess is the thing. Um, yeah. It's a good question. Yeah, and there's so much that specialists deal with. I mean, you guys are dealing with such high, um, you know, high-level medicine, like uh, complicated issues and very specific treatments. And um, so in a way, like it, some of the things that we primary care teams need to communicate are probably just easier on some level to communicate than, you know, the radiation therapy plan for, <laughs> for this type of tumor. I mean, that's just really tough. And it's a very um, fine tuned skill, I'm sure to take that information and distill it into what the client needs to know and 
um, to feel like they understand and are comfortable with something. Um, and then, you know, also not get totally overwhelmed or be like, this is like gibberish that I'm reading. <laughs> well, sometimes when I read oncology notes, I feel like I need to go back to school. So, um, me too sometimes. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit better. I'm not going to lie. Um, but I'm also thinking like when you're talking about this, I'm kind of thinking if this might be a place for our less experienced team members to shine because, like we all have been the person who's a little bit jaded. I feel like when we're, when we've been doing this a while and we think, Oh, why don't they understand this already? Like how many times do I have to explain it? And honestly, it might be the first time that client has heard it. We've just explained heartworm disease eight times already that day. So it seems like they should understand it already, but we're getting maybe a little bit jaded um, as far as like what it takes to really convey information in an accessible way. And a less experienced team member, a vet assistant or brand new tech or a client care team member who hasn't had a decade of teaching this material, I feel like they've got to identify pretty well with, with the client who says like, I don't even know what these words mean. Oh, for sure. And I think we've all experienced that where even clients feel more comfortable asking those people questions because there is that layer of intimidation just by virtue of being in the position of a doctor. And this is all, all of this rings true. There's so much research on this in human medicine. Um, it's just, it's just amazing. And like veterinary medicine, we have, you know, six papers or something like that. And there's thousands (laughs) of studies on this in human medicine. And, you know, I think it's just, very important to, to, to think about it. And yeah, I think those, if it might empower those less experienced or less seasoned individuals to also ask questions themselves to know that, you know, okay, like it's not just these big, scary words that I don't understand. Like I can ask a question on a more, you know, fundamental level. Yeah, you're right. That's gotta be, and it's gotta be a place where our team members who are learning about all of this, somebody who's brand new to an oncology specialty team, for instance, and who has been working in vet med maybe for a while, but this suddenly they feel like a beginner again, or a client care specialist who starts at a vet clinic when they've been working at Starbucks or a Mm -hmm. restaurant, you know, the client care part isn't the new part. It's the insane number of words and processes (laughs) and like things that the rest of us just take for granted if we've been doing a long time or we grew up in vet med and somebody who's really brilliant and very motivated could come in and still be just absolutely a brand new beginner at that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, we need to have empathy with each other because it is going to be, it is human nature, get judgmental. Um, you know, if we feel like something should be obvious and somebody just isn't getting it, (laughs) it's human nature to feel frustrated, but we also, they also, you know, are showing us that we have holes in how we're communicating that knowledge. Um, if our teammates don't understand it. So, um, what about, so I'm thinking about, um, arguments that I've seen. <laughs> I should, I should say spirited discussions I've seen <laughs> online about, um, when we have, you know, vets and vet teams who are kind of doing what some people perceive as dumbing stuff down. Mm-hmm. So they'll use words that maybe aren't totally technically or medically accurate because they're words that they know the client will understand. So for instance, saying we need to take some x-rays of your dog's abdomen, you know, and then you will see people doing that saying it's more important for them to understand than for him, them to know the specific difference between an x-ray and radiograph. 
And then you have other people who are sticklers for doing and saying things the proper way and saying, you know, it's not going to help anybody if we're not being accurate in our communications. Um, do you feel like this study sort of sheds any light on that debate? Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, and so I, I get exactly what you're saying. And I, I, in my own veterinary career have definitely faced that. And I think you face it a lot when you're a student. Um, and you, you know, especially if you've had some clinical experience or maybe none, but you come in and say, okay, we're going to take x-rays or, you know, I'm, I'm presenting a case and the, the most senior clinician that you're talking to says, what do you want to do? And you say, I want to take some x-rays and they'll, you know, x-rays is not the right word. And they get very, as you're saying, very sort of emotional about it. Um, and I guess one thing I've coming full circle from being, you know, private practice now back into academia. When I first started in academia, I I think I kind of was a little bit that way, you know, like use the right words, let's use our doctor terms. Um, And then had a spirited discussion, as you say, with a group about how, you know, it's kind of understanding, is that just a pet peeve? Are you just saying something that annoys you? You know, is, is it, it's not like you're saying, I want to do a blood chemistry test and you really meant radiograph. Like, it's a translatable thing. And I think it's something where if the word is more understandable or more relatable Then I'm, I'm okay using it, you know, as long as they know the other word, like, and, and even if you don't, sometimes you forget those big words from time to time. Um, you know, uveitis, eye inflammation. I mean, even inflammation is a really complex word. So I think, um, the awareness of it is really important. So I hope that people looking at this study or kind of thinking about this will, will, think about that. And I think one really important, um, thing I've learned in my research of this, this topic is time. And again, even people who have very, very good literacy skills and who are, um, highly capable of scoring high on, on those types of tests prefer things to be written at a simpler level. Um, they prefer, especially medical type terminology and things like even people who are professional healthcare workers, like the, the preference is just to read something that's more comprehensive or, or easier to comprehend and just on a level that isn't over the top. So it's whether it's, I don't have time to read it or, I, you know, I want to kind of just know the important points. So you're not, you're very much the argument I have to go against a lot is you're not dumbing it down. Um, you're just making it more likely to be understood. It's hard to believe, but it's that time of year already. Registration for Connexity 2022 is open. AHA's annual conference will be in Nashville, Tennessee this year from September 14th through 17th, and you do not want to miss it. From workshops to games to unforgettable speakers, we're planning something for everyone on your team. So bring them all and join us for an event that will leave you energized and inspired. Learn more and register at aha.org connexity. Let's create a better world together. And that's not a bad thing. Right. I love that. I mean, it's always to everyone's benefit, the pet, us, the client, if the client understands it without having to like sit and with a dictionary next to it, Mm -hmm. like a medical dictionary, (laughs) look up all the words. And so, um, but at the same time, like I'm a stickler for medical records, you know, I want the medical records to be accurate. They want them to reflect what was done and what the plan is. So anybody could read them and understand. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really big distinction is that client communication is not the medical record. And if we're cutting and pasting, that's fine, but it might take some adjustments um, to make that appropriate for wherever we're cutting it and pasting it. Um, Yeah. I, I think that's, um, (laughs) that, 
it's it's really important point that this isn't just about like somebody's reading level although we often i think write for a higher reading level than we should but it's also just it makes life easier if you don't have to think about this too hard right Mm -hmm. absolutely i mean i think uh, you know we all we do get wary of those owners that are like oh don't worry i I got it all or you know you don't have Mm -hmm. to explain that to me and i'll always like like, yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but i i sometimes worry that that is a is a cover for, I really don't know what's going on or how many times you end a console or I've ended a console and an owner will say, can you give me some place or a resource? I can go look this up. And I always took that as like, Oh, I'm very insulted by that. You know, yeah, I just spent all this time explaining it, but I was insulted because I was probably sort of embarrassed or like, Oh crap, I didn't do a good job doing that. You know, it was like a very tangible way of seeing it. So yeah, there's a reason that pet health websites are so popular. And it's not just because clients don't want to listen to us. It's because sometimes the article is in a blog post format is just so much more digestible for them. Exactly. Um, Yeah. If you want people to avoid like, you know, pet advice from Joe Schmo, um, Dr. Joe Schmo on the internet, like, right, you better write like that. (laughs) (laughs) Just say, say things that are right. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so I, I do have a question about this study because you had mentioned earlier that there were a ton of um, papers in human medicine that are talking about how important it is, you know, these communication skills and like mm-hmm. what I think you referred to at one point when we were talking as softer skills, mm-hmm. um, you know, how important those are to patient care and patient outcomes. And we have almost nothing in vet med that talks about that. So like as an oncologist, you know, you, I feel like that's a field that's really data heavy. Would you Mm -hmm. agree? Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of statistics and stuff. And I, I always feel like when I'm referring patients, I say, well, I probability wise, like the oncologist is the person who can tell you that, you know, um, there's just so much to know that's data driven. And then you go in there presenting as an oncologist, presenting an idea for a study that has to do with communication and like talking to clients and like how, what words should we use and stuff like that. And do you feel like the reception for studies like that is getting is improving do you feel like as a profession we're more accepting of papers that deal with topics like that Mm -hmm. versus just like the hard data of medicine and that's another great question and I think um the best way I can answer that because I am relatively new to this and kind of just fell into it by chance and, and and just luck um is that I when I present this data to the researchers, you know, these sort of hardcore scientists and people who have, you know, studying a very specific mutation in a very specific type of cell. And I'm like over here, like, Hey, I just, I looked at the readability of this stuff. What do you think? I'm always nervous about it. To be honest, I have this imposter syndrome and I can't tell you time and again, it is so well received and just staggering that people are a unaware of this, you know, kind of, and then have this interest and seem to be um, very much understanding of how important it is, you know, again, and recognizing their own times where they're guilty of it as well. Um, so I think it's been really encouraging to me that, that it is so well received, you know, and, um, that uh, people think it's important. And again, usually the only thing I have to counterbalance is sort of this idea of, well, it's, then I get it. We need to dumb everything down. And that's sort of the next level of saying you're not dumbing it down. So yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. And, um, I'm really excited to see where things go mm-hmm. um, with it um, and kind of what we can learn as as we move forward and hopefully more studies coming out. Yeah, I would love to see a big 
body of, of evidence growing like human med- medicine has um, for these things that are not the medicine themselves, but they're just as important because we're not going to be able to deliver that good medicine if we don't get this stuff right. Absolutely, yeah. In a way, it seems like the more complicated the medicine gets, the more we discover and the more like tiny little mutations in one, you know, one type of cancer that we discover, um, the more important it becomes to be able to translate that into um, something a client can understand and say, okay, this is something I want to do for my pet. So, yeah, for sure. And and taking that on is, you know, it it sounds like a little bit, almost like a battle or it's overwhelming, but figuring out ways to embrace it and kind of make it part of your, your, your sort of daily routine, I think. Um, and then figuring out what way that, that clients and owners best process the information is sort of the next level of it. Um, so yeah. Do you, do you think that's an area of personalization that we could do for each client? Like, do you think some clients don't even want written instructions? They want, um, I don't know, they want you to refer them to a podcast Mm -hmm. or a YouTube video, or, you know, they want to take notes in the room while you talk or something. Absolutely. I mean, I know when, when I go to my physician, they'll usually ask a question, how about, you know, how do you think you learn best in those giant forms that you're filling out and, you know, reading. That's cool. Um, I think that's something that we could, look out for our clients, um, it, it, for to, to tailor that information. I think if we had that sort of body already built up that, you know, you're a person who's a visual person. So I'll remember that during the consult, I'll use this whiteboard in the room. Um, you know, I'll present you with, like you said, videos or things like that, or you just a verbal person that listens and that's how you get it. Or do you need to read it? And I think assuming everyone learns best by reading is number one mistake. Like saying, yeah. okay, I'll just write everything down for you. Don't worry about it. Um, cause I think that is something that not everybody learns best that way. Number one, number two, that's putting a lot of pressure on the owner. You know, if you say, don't worry about it, I'll write it all down. And then they're like, great. And then they read it and they don't understand it. They may not yeah. feel like that connection to be able to then call you and ask that question. Um, again, perpetuating the situation. Um, so yeah, I think it would be really interesting to, to kind of dive into that as well. Yeah. I love that question. How do you learn best? Like, I don't think, I don't think I've had doctors ask me that, but it's such a good question. And I'm just thinking back to this one, we had this one, um, veterinarian, the one who actually started the practice where I was working until very recently and everybody loved him. You know, he knew everybody's kids names and like such a, a member yeah. of the community, you know, and, and, uh, he loved drawing on the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. That was what he did. Um, and so there was a whiteboard in every exam room in two hospitals because he liked to draw on the whiteboard. <laughs> and I always felt a little guilty cause I didn't use the whiteboard enough. Like I just didn't <laughs> think about it. Usually it would be to draw an eye, you know, cause I feel like I had such a hard time explaining the eye. Like you mentioned before, yeah, you know, yeah. sometimes I words throw me for a loop, but for sure. Yeah. I always feel really bad referring people to the ophthalmologist because my eye words are just not good. <laughs> like they're, I'm so sorry, ophthalmologists. Like, and they seem very tolerant of it because I'm sure they know we don't all know the eye words. But, yeah, yeah. But, um, but then I remember opening up the computer one day and looking at a client's record and this alert popped up and it says that she didn't want to see that doctor because she doesn't like anyone drawing on the whiteboard. Yeah. <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, this is enough that this client felt like coming forward and saying, I don't want you to draw for me yeah. at my visit. Like, people really care about yeah. that stuff. And yeah, well, I was, I was, I was just going to say, and that could be, I mean, we, that could be because that person doesn't know how to read. Like it could be, you know, people, yeah, that is something that's hidden. You can't see that. 
Yeah, you're you right. You know, it could be something as simple as they have very, very poor reading skill. They don't read. Yeah. Um, and or their we, vision isn't good. Their vision isn't good, especially, you know, in the studies with, with, um, human subjects time. And again, it's the elderly that have the lowest readability and it's not because it's for reasons you wouldn't even think of. There's, there's generational language differences that I'm starting to experience now as students are coming up and I'm like, what yeah. is that? You know, we had like, instead of sedation, now we say sedation. I'm like, we do. I don't know. So, and trazodone is trazy, but I didn't, you know, so like, these are all things that, you know, I think we don't think about, but we, we just have to think if it just becomes more natural to think about these things, then, you know, again, it's an awareness more than anything. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of students um, and the next generation of vets, like how do you think that research like this is going to change how we train vet students and, or how do you think it should change how we train yeah. them? Yeah. Th- there's a should and could, and I guess yeah, um, things move slowly. Not yet, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very true. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm here screaming from this tiny little mountaintop. Um, but I think we should, number one, it's an awareness and having students, you know, understand that, people learn in all different ways to it's an awareness of this is a thing like readability is a thing. And if you're going to be using and distributing written materials, like let's make, let's teach you how to do it in a way that's, that's effective. Um, because that's the other thing is that a lot of the studies basically just analyze information and say the readability is poor, the readability is poor, the readability is poor, but what can you do to make it better? Um, is sort of the next level. And then does that impact outcome for that owner? So yeah, I think we should be really incorporating this into all aspects of, of student training, you know, from, from day one, because that's something they're going to be doing no matter what they're going to, whether, whether there's never a paper record ever in sight ever again, but there's going to be written, everything's going to be written. There's going to be written records. It's something they're going to be doing all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, it also brings up the questions of, you know, are we giving, good instructions to, um, our support teams too. Like, you know, when we tell a client care member that this is the message they should pass on to a client, it should be a message that the client care team member can understand. And I feel like I'm just thinking of a billion examples Mm -hmm. where I probably like barked information in the middle of a busy shift at a poor client care team member who was like, I don't know what she just said, but I'm gonna write it down. And then I'm going to tell that lady because she's yelling at me on the phone (laughs) and like, how is that benefiting anybody? Because the clients know if they're just getting fed something. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. And also I think what we could do with students and, and we try to do this, I think we do a good job of it, but just remembering that, you know, if an owner calls with a question that you are sure that was discussed at some point, or just, just assuming, not assuming that they, they're not, processing it, you know, taking that step back and looking at yourself in that situation first, I guess the opposite of what I said at first, like it, it could be your fault. Like, you know, look at yourself (laughs) first and think about it and, and take that as sort of the default is that you probably could do a better job explaining it. Not that you're, it's not a bad, good thing, but like, think of that aspect of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We've all been in relationships where we felt like we were being totally clear about our needs and the other person just had thought we were saying mm-hmm. something completely different. And that's with somebody who, who may know you really, really well. So, yeah. um, your 20 minutes in an exam room with someone just isn't enough yeah. time to know exactly that what they're going to get out of what you say. But 
I love all of this so much because I always have felt like, you know, the focus in vet school is so much on the medicine, so much on knowing which drug treats what and memorizing these lists of differentials and maybe not as much at, at Cornell <laughs> because I remember um, the Ross students making me look really bad. Uh, they still, they still <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> because they knew all the differentials for everything. And I was like, um, I know where to look that up. <laughs> still an important life skill, folks. <laughs> yes. But, um, but I, you know, there's so much... At- so much emphasis on the medicine as there should be. We have to be really good at that, but communicating with each other, communicating with our teams, our teams who have an enormous variety of backgrounds and knowledge bases. And their one consistent thing is that they all want to learn. Like people come into vet med because they want to learn and then they want to be able to pass it on to clients too. And so it, it's only to everyone's benefit if we take the time to make sure that what we're saying makes sense to everyone involved so that, and then that also gives us less, puts us less on the hook when we're the only one who understands what we wrote down. <laughs> we're definitely going to get a call from some clients and yeah. it's not going to be able to be answered by anyone else. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. So true. <laughs> yeah. Work-life balance is it's all the name of that. <laughs> so, um, okay. So I have one more question for you um, before we let you go. Um, I always like to think about ways that people listening, no matter what their role in the hospital, um, can sort of take what we're talking about and put it to use, uh, you know, with something they can start regardless of whether they're, they're in a, a position to implement change, um, for the whole team. So what would you say is something that people on vet teams could start doing, say tomorrow to improve their written communications with clients? Uh, yeah, that's great. And I think we've kind of touched on it throughout this time we were talking, the first thing is just the awareness, right? So kind of hopefully anybody listening to this or kind of who reads the, the study will, will be aware of this as being a problem. Um, and then taking advantage of these readability calculators, um, they're built into word processing, um, software word has its own um, calculator. Um, you can go online. There's a couple of free ones. If you use Grammarly, um, th- that it, it has, it's built into these where at the end, um, it's not automatic for word. You do have to adjust your settings for it, but you can, uh, put your text in, run your spell check. And then at the very end, it'll say, here's your readability levels. And, and you can look and see like what grade level you're writing for. And, oh my gosh, you were really supposed to be targeting sixth grade. And I'm writing at the 14th grade, which is college. Oh my gosh. Like no kidding. No one, you know, not surprising people don't understand. Um, and then practicing what you need to do to make your, that score go down. Um, and I do this all the time. Now I write something, score it, shake my head and go, gosh, and then start chipping away and chipping away and chipping away and figuring out how to rewrite a word to make it more readable. Um, and, and, and yeah, and I think those are some easy steps that, that can be taken, um, right away. You know, you don't need to to buy anything or or change anything that you're doing to kind of work on that. Yeah. And I I love too, that you can do that without even anybody on your team knowing, but I do think that if you, you know, these calculators are really cool. I didn't even know these existed until recently. And um, well, I'll link to a couple in the show notes here, as well as to the paper that we're talking about, obviously. Um, but these readability calculators, like you could go and do that with anything you write. Um, and you can also, if 
you know, if you're looking at instructions or start instructions from another clinic, you could run that through, you know, copy and paste into a document or whatever, and just see what the scores are looking like for, you know, the vet clinics that, that you're surrounded by. And it's not so that you can judge them and be like, they are, you know, way above the level they should be at. It's more because you know that those clients then are going to need some extra assistance. And then if maybe you can bring other members of the team, some awareness, uh, when they might not have heard this or might not be thinking that way. Um, so view it as a collaboration for a common goal versus a way to score people. Yes. That's never going to go well. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. There's there's enough judging in the world. We can just, we could be kind to each other and help not judge. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It goes back to the assume good intent and like, we're all trying to do the right thing here. So yeah, Yeah, for sure. Assume good intent is a great rule for all aspects of life. (laughs) Sometimes very difficult, but very important. Very important. Dr. Intel, thank you so much for your time. Um, This has been great. And I'm really just, I'm so stoked to see stuff like this coming out in JAVMA. And hopefully we'll be seeing more studies like this um, in the future in vet med. I think it's just so important. Thank you so much for this chance to talk about this work. I could talk about it all the time and I'm so interested in it and I'd love to see other people interested and excited to see where it's going to go in the future. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll get to talk about it again sometime, but for now... Thank you. Thank everyone for listening. And we'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.